I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. There is a unique relationship between world Jewry and Israel. Unlike, say, French expatriates in France or any other nation's people, it was the world's Jews who created the modern state of Israel. They birthed it, aided it, and continue to give it crucial support. Israel's promise to the diaspora is also unprecedented. This is your homeland. You may have never been here, you may not speak Hebrew, and perhaps you haven't met a single Israeli in your entire life. But if you want to return, or if you need refuge, you are welcome here. This relationship, critical and in many ways sacred, is now and will, in years to come, be under increasing strain as a result of the recent Israeli elections. To help us make sense of what happened and what may unfold is David Horowitz, one of the world's foremost experts on Israeli politics. He is the former editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post and the founding editor of the Times of Israel. David, it's such a pleasure to have you here. You're uh, one of the key analysts and observers of Israel and the entire Jewish world. I read the Times of Israel several times a day, and so it's just a great honor and a pleasure to have you here with us. Well, thank you. It's incredibly hard work that our team does. It's you know 24-7 coverage, and we do our best, and we take it very seriously, and it's nice to be appreciated. Thank you. So let me start there before we get to the matters of the day. You really made of uh, this... I don't even know if we call it a newspaper anymore. It's a website that delivers the news. It's just a fabulous, fantastic uh, site. It's indispensable reading for anybody who wants to know what's happening, not only in Israel, but for Israel-Diaspora relations. So how is the Times of Israel doing, and are you pleased with where you are and what your readership is like? Well, I also don't know what to call it. It's a, it's a website. It's a news site with analysis and opinion, a very right, vibrant blogs platform as well. We're trying to, to, to enable people to frame the dialogue and, and enable people to understand what's unfolding and try to do it fairly. I'm very proud of it. And I think the challenges of what we do have gotten harder, you know, trying to make sure that you've got stuff right. News is coming incredibly fast and in some cases is being manipulated or even, even falsified. So it, we're not perfect, but we're doing our best and, and it's very resonant. I mean, millions of unique users. So 7 million people who, who care enough to come to the site once or more a month, about 35 million page views. So it's it's pretty resonant. You have enormous influence here in the diaspora, not only in terms of the hard news that you present and cover, but also the various blogs and analyses. And your analyses are just terrific, amazing. Do you have that kind of influence in Israel among policymakers? Do they read the Times of Israel? Do you want that kind of influence? In terms of influence... I feel a great deal of responsibility for what I write. I call the site The Times of Israel because we're a Zionist entity, The Times of Israel, and we want Israel to thrive. And I would add, we want Israel to thrive as the miracle that it has been, including the miracle of a Jewish democracy. We've managed to sustain Israel as a Jewish democracy. And that's not something we can take for granted, especially right now. When I write stuff about aspects of current affairs that trouble me, I do it with an immense sense of responsibility and concern. If I'm right about things that can be protected, and if I'm right about things that need to be avoided, then obviously I want people in, in positions of power to read and take action. But I'm also conscious that it's very easy to be a writer and a journalist and 
it's much harder to actually devise policy and take responsibility for it. I don't have any delusions about where the true weight of responsibility is. In terms of where, where we're read in, in the Israeli leadership, I think most of all among people who are connected to Israel in, in its sort of global context in a kind of deep way. So, for example, I would differentiate you know, kind of grossly but broadly between, say, the foreign ministry world and the Israeli military world. I, I think people who are, are conscious of how Israeli policy and Israel's reality and Israel's challenges impact the diaspora and vice versa are probably pretty plugged into the Times of Israel. So there are areas where I think we have an impact and there are areas where, where I wish, and it's not just the Times of Israel, I think, you know, I wish an awareness of English journalism, of Jews around the world who are, who are so invested in Israel is lacking. Let me get to the politics of the day. We're recording this before the government has officially been put together and received its uh, mandate, but nobody expects anything different than, I think, a very uh, right-wing government, I think in some ways the most right-wing and most orthodox and most nationalistic government Israel has ever had. Tell us about uh, what you think about that and what you think diaspora Jews and American Jews should be concerned about. We had the fifth of five elections in less than four years, and by far the most conclusive result of any of those elections. A 64 block for previous prime minister and soon to be prime minister again, Benjamin Netanyahu, and his allied parties. Now, that, that already was quite a dramatic result, given that I think Israel, in, in terms of the, the left and the right in Israeli politics, which is not the same as the left and the right everywhere else, but broadly speaking, you know, if you take left wing to be um, optimistic about relations with the Palestinians, secular and living in Tel Aviv, and right wing to be wary of uh, relinquishing territory to the Palestinians and Orthodox and living in Jerusalem. And by the way, that is, of course, a gross generalization. So Israel moved to the right. And in the outgoing Knesset, the one that was run by a coalition that went all the way from right to left with a conservative Islamic party as well, in that Knesset, there were 70 plus of the 120 Knesset members who were right wing. But there was a narrow majority for the anti-Netanyahu camp, a personal anti-Netanyahu majority that included right wing parties. So what happened in this election really is that the right wing majority asserted itself, but really reasserted itself. And the anti-Netanyahu majority was defeated. So the result, in a way, it's not as dramatic as it might sound in terms of a shift by Israel to the right. The real change was that there was no majority to try to keep Netanyahu out of power. And part of that was the consequence of the last coalition. I mean, all kinds of factors. The fact that a right-wing party, Yamina, joined up with the center and the left, uh, in terms of politics, was seen as a betrayal by some of the voters who had supported former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. And when it came to election day this time, I know orthodox and right-wing Israelis who are certainly not far-right and who do not consider themselves to be extreme, they looked around for a party to vote for, and they didn't feel that they had one. And in many cases, they voted for parties that were more hawkish and more intolerant than they would have easily done or contentedly done. You know, voting, especially in, when you have the mix of parties that we have on offer here, is often a case of not so much the party that you strongly identify with, but maybe the one you least are troubled by or you can most bring yourself to vote for. So, you know, there, there were lots of subtleties to this election. Six or seven seats worth of votes, you could argue, fell below the so-called Knesset threshold. They went to parties in the Arab sector and on the, the Zionist left, Balad and Meretz, respectively, that didn't make it back into the Knesset. 
In the case of Meretz, they got 150,000 odd votes. If they've got 5,000 more, they would have had four seats. In the end, they got zero. The weight of the victory, that 64-56 victory, obscures some complexities. Bottom line is, though, indeed, as you say, Netanyahu has a largely homogeneous coalition of right, far-right, and ultra-Orthodox parties, and he has no other party that would give him diversity. He has no party, as has often been the case with his coalitions, to his left. He's one of the most dovish figures in this coalition that is coming into power. And it has, I would say, a radical agenda. And as the, the weeks of negotiation have progressed since the election, to some extent, unfathomably to me, Netanyahu has further empowered some of his Likud party's coalition allies on the far right, where I don't see that he had to. So, for example, you have a disciple of Mayor Kahana named Itamar Ben-Vir, who heads a far right party who has multiple convictions, including for incitement to terrorism, who used to, until fairly recently, favor the transfer out of Israel of Arabs, and who has moderated that to only urging the transfer out of Israel to quote-unquote disloyal Arabs. I don't know who would define that. Netanyahu two years ago said that Ben-Gvir could be in his coalition, but his views were such that he was not fit to sit in his government. And he is about to appoint him. If I'm not mistaken, during the campaign itself, Netanyahu refused to be in the same photo with Ben-Gvir. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the idea that Itamar Ben-Gvir would, would be in charge of the police was unthinkable to Netanyahu less than two years ago. But he's not only about to make him minister in charge of the police, he's giving him an expanded ministry with more votes, with more rights, forgive me, than any previous minister of police has enjoyed in Israel. It's being renamed the National Security Ministry, last time I checked. There's a signed annex to the non-final coalition deal, as I speak to you. And in that signed annex, Envir is, is being given rights, including over the border police units in the West Bank. There's a, another head of a party on the far right, but Salel Smotrich of the Religious Zionism Party, who it was intimated to him, I think, that he would have a shot at becoming defense minister. Uh, Netanyahu decided that was not a very good idea, including, I think, because of pressure from the United States. He's going to be the finance minister, a delegate of his. He's also going to be a minister in the defense ministry, and he's going to have powers, apparently, separate from those of the full-fledged defense minister, including over the civil administration, which runs the West Bank, including the, the power to make high-level appointments in that administration. My point here is that Netanyahu won a, an election fair and square, no doubt about it, and he only has one coalition. It's these, this combination of parties. But in the same way that he needs them, they need him. They're not going to go anywhere else. They're not going to sit in the opposition, and they're certainly not going to join forces with the opposition parties. I mean, I can speculate as to why but he seems to be giving them even more authority over areas where either he will go along and the consequences, I think, will be far-reaching, or he will have to try to stop them. I'm genuinely concerned for the well-being of democracy in Israel. The agenda of all the parties that are entering this coalition, or at least many members of all the parties in this nascent coalition, is to quote-unquote reform the balance between the political echelon and the judiciary. What they're planning, if they go ahead with it, is not a reform. It's the neutering of the judiciary, and it's the shattering of the breaks and the balance of powers that have safeguarded Israeli democracy. And I say that because we don't have a constitution, we don't have a Bill of Rights, we don't even really have a powerful legislature when, as now, there is a majority coalition with a very, very homogenous agenda. 
So you've got 64 Knesset members with very, very common goals in many areas who therefore can dominate parliament and get anything they want legislated more or less. And if, as this coalition plans, the Supreme Court is neutered and cannot override government legislation, or rather can, but the government can then simply re-legislate it, then every protection and every personal freedom is at the whim of the political majority. And that's apparently what they're intending to do. And that's, a, to me, a very, very potent and immediate threat to Israeli democracy. You've observed the Israeli political process for a long time. You've followed Prime Minister Netanyahu extensively. You mentioned some of the things that he's doing to put together the coalition are unfathomable to you. He's not a a person who is impulsive. He is actually quite a careful politician, quite brilliant in politics and generally. What we would call in the West, in Israel, they define it different, but essentially he's a liberal. He's a secular liberal person. How do you fathom what he's doing? Netanyahu, as you say, he's not deaf to how Israel needs to function, and he's not blind to how Israel is perceived, and he's not a military adventurer, and he's secular, and he forewent annexation of the settlements and the Jordan Valley, and he chose peace with the United Arab Emirates over annexation. So again, that's the context for the inexplicability. So one possibility, I mean, of course, is he's on trial, He's on trial in three cases which he regards as incomprehensible to him, either utterly denies the wrongdoing or insists that what he has done does not constitute wrongdoing. And I am not going to try and give you some sense of who's right or who's wrong in this. These are complicated cases. One possible explanation for what he's doing is he's locking in a coalition who will help him extricate himself. You know, some of the people in this coalition have said they will advance legislation to cancel, to abolish the charge of fraud and breach of trust, which is the only charge common to all three of the cases for which he is on trial. So the notion that he is locking in this coalition with people who he thinks will help vote for him to get done the things that will extricate him from his trial is one possibility. Another possibility is that he wants to render himself indispensable. He was prime minister in Israel for 15 years, three years in the 90s and 12 years until you know, last year. In all of those coalitions, certainly in most of them, he was not the most extreme figure on either end. He was not the most right-wing and he was not the most left-wing. It was comfortable and convenient for him to be able to assert that forces in his coalition were such that he couldn't do everything that he might want to do, whether it was to boost settlement enterprise or to constrain it, for example. It was a message he was able to send to critics in Israel and to critics abroad. This coalition there's no question that he is at the dovish end, if not the most dovish. And maybe you could speculate that he's given people like Smotrich and Benvir powers with the addendum that in coordination with the prime minister. And maybe this is him saying, yes, I'm the person who's had to build a government because we needed stable government, but democracy is not in peril. Israel is not heading into the radical far right. We're not going to restrict LGBTQ rights. We're not going to allow them to change our reality. And who's the defense against that? You know, me. So maybe that's somewhere in the thinking. And another possible explanation is that Netanyahu wants to do what he is doing. And he wants to expand the settlement enterprise. And he wants to have a, shall we say, a different challenging notion of Jewish identity 
I find the last of those very hard to believe. I don't think he wants to alienate non-Orthodox Judaism. And that too is on the agenda of some of his partners, changing the law of return to remove the grandchild clause that if you have one Jewish grandparent, you'd be automatically eligible for citizenship, revoking conversions performed in Israel under the reform movement for purposes of citizenship. I don't find it easy to believe that he would want to alienate diaspora jury. I think Netanyahu was always very proud to think of Israel as, as high in the thoughts and the identity of Jews around the world in all streams of Judaism and all kinds of Jewish identity. I think he has wanted to see himself to some extent as prime minister of the Jewish people worldwide. And again, therefore, I mean, I'm sorry and I'm not smart enough. I find some of the, the steps that he is taking, even when we acknowledge that that's the only coalition he can build and that he's playing chicken with some of these people, he seems to me to be empowering them far more than would, would be necessary. And by the way, to the dismay of many people in his own Likud party who see prize ministries and prize responsibilities being doled out literally every day to parties that are not the Likud. Uh, Netanyahu has uh, recently given several uh, interviews to Western media, and he may, he's making essentially the point, I'm the prime minister, I determine at the beginning and at the end what Israel's policies are going to be. I won't let our policies be dictated or determined by uh, forces with whom I disagree. Just in terms of the power politics, do you think that that is a reasonable, realistic scenario that he's proposing, that he can stop anything that comes through from more extreme elements of his coalition? I don't know what to make of those comments. And if I was doing the interviews, I would follow up to ask him how that can square with the choices that he's making and with the individuals and what they stand for, the individuals and the policies that he is empowering. It's all very well to say that, but then why did you give Avi Maoz unnecessarily an oversight role in Israeli education? You know what he stands for and you know the agenda that he publicly declares. Let me ask you specifically about something that diaspora Jews care about. For example, amending the law of return to disqualify for the purposes of citizenship people who have been converted by non-Orthodox rabbis. Uh, that has been something in the past that Netanyahu has uh, sought at all costs to avoid, actually. If there was a concerted effort on the part of his coalition partners to amend the law of return, would he even have the power to stop them? Okay, so I want to I separate between two things that you mentioned there, right? There's changing the law of return, and then there's the issue of reform conversions in Israel. Reform conversions in Israel affects, it's incredibly symbolic. It affects relatively few people. It's not clear that it will go ahead, although I think it's very possible. I'm not sure they would even do it retroactively, but going forward, they wouldn't allow reform conversions in Israel for the purposes of citizenship. It is not clear to me by any means, but it might be that this proves to be the case, that this would impact reform conversions abroad for people who then come to Israel. That issue has come up because the courts over the years said to the politicians, tell us what you want to do about this. You need to set out some clear thinking. And in the end, the politicians didn't. So the Supreme Court said, well, we have to allow these conversions for purposes of citizenship. That's much less controversial than changing the law of return to cancel the grandchild clause, the clause that gives automatic citizenship to would-be Israelis who have won halachically Jewish grandparent. Now that is potentially very far-reaching. I don't think at the moment it would be sensible to assert that that is going to happen. I haven't heard within Likud, I haven't heard from Netanyahu, anything that would make me think he would willingly go along with this. 
And I suspect that if he wants to, he could stop it. So, you know, we shouldn't believe everything I say, for goodness sake, but we should watch carefully and see how that plays out. I don't see that happening easily and maybe not at all. Some of the other issues, you know, that override clause, which is maybe less immediately dramatic for many people in the diaspora, is super dramatic for Israel and Israel as a democracy. And just one more thing in terms of what he can stop and that notion that, don't worry, I have the last word. But Salah Smotrich is going to be his finance minister and his minister in the defense ministry with some responsibility over settlements. But Salah Smotrich is not easily subverted or deflected from his agenda. And the clearest indication of that is that Netanyahu lost power last year when he could have retained power had he built a coalition that re- relied on outside support from Ram, the conservative Islamist party that joined the Bennett-Lapid coalition. Now, if you believe the narrative that I believe, Netanyahu was more than ready to rely on support from Ram in order to retain power. And Smotrich made publicly very clear that he was not going to allow Netanyahu to rely on the votes of Arab Knesset members to build a coalition, that Smotrich was not prepared to sit in such a coalition. And that stance of Smotrich is what condemned Netanyahu to the opposition in the first place last year. This is a hardcore ideologue who is not easily shifted. And therefore, once you have empowered him and given him rights over settlements and appointments in the civil administration, etc., it is not going to be easy to ensure that only the things you want to happen are going to unfold. It is going to be very, very difficult for him, and it gets harder every day as he gives more authority to some of these ideological hardliners. So, David, looking down the road for, say, the next six months or a year, What is the impact going to be, one, on diaspora Jews, and secondarily, how is the American government and the West going to respond to this government? I I can just say, you know, in the preliminary stages here, I can almost sense the, the, the Biden administration struggling to not assume the worst and to hope for the best. And, you know, in terms of their public statements, they're clearly very concerned about what may develop in Israel. How do you see 2023 unfolding from those two perspectives? Just to be awkward, I want to add a third, which is for Israelis. So first of all, you know, I I don't know anything. It hasn't happened yet. We can only try to assess, to wait, and I would say maybe hope that some of the declared and likely appointments and agendas will not pan out. So there's potential for friction, and we should stress potential for friction with a president who visited Israel and and was so glowing and and personal in his oratory when it came to his relationship with Israel. You know, he said, I've been in federal politics for 50 years and to see the dreams of Israel's pioneers coming to fruition for me is, you know, something close to a miracle or worse to that effect. And this is somebody, an American president who is a Zionist and and declares his Zionism. He won't want to be openly at odds with Israel. If it's an Israel that becomes less democratic, and especially, I think, in terms of American foreign policy and so on, if it's an Israel that is extremely hawkish when it comes to the Palestinians and the territories, relations will be fraught. And that's, you know, complicated. So a a well-meaning administration that will not want to be picking fights with Israel, but that certainly disagrees with all recent Israeli governments when it comes to Iran, but has been, I mean, this administration and, of course, the previous administration you know, far fewer open disagreements over things related to the Palestinians. If there are the areas of disagreement become profound, 
it's going to be a very difficult relationship. In terms of diaspora Jews, you know, you're speaking to me. I'm giving you what I would consider myself to be some kind of centrist's overview. It's an overview that is in greater opposition to an Israeli government than I have found myself for many, many years. Diaspora Jews, likewise, there will be many people perhaps listening to this and, and thinking, what is he on about? This is fantastic, long overdue, Israel taking the logical, in, internalizing the logical consequence of Palestinian rejectionism, which I do not minimize. You know, I'm not somebody who believes we, should, we can safely relinquish territory in the foreseeable future. When we've relinquished territory in Gaza and South Lebanon, terrorist organizations with massive rocket arsenals took over. Everything that's played out on the Palestinian front in recent years has been slapping Israel and telling it, you need to be extremely wary, I would say, of the Palestinians. We're conditioning our state on the capacity to wreak great harm, even existential harm to yours, demographically and potentially militarily. The reality is complicated. And there are people, like I say, who will think in Israel and abroad in the diaspora community that this is necessary. And I think for many, and particularly in non-Orthodox streams of Judaism, there are aspects of what might take shape that are going to be incredibly alienating. And that's a tragedy and maybe an avoidable one. And let's hope that it can yet be avoided. I think this country is something that I want to be proud of. I think its achievements are astonishing. And I think it needs to have a strong, nuanced relationship with diaspora jury. And by the way, I don't think it's historic modern purpose. You know, it was tragically revived too late to save the Jews from the Holocaust. But it has served as a refuge ever since, as well as a place that people like me chose to come and live in. People continue to make their homes in Israel because they feel persecuted as Jews elsewhere. Persecuted and threatened, including certainly in recent years in parts of Europe. Not only talking about parts of the Arab world over the years, much of the Arab world over the years, the Middle East and North Africa. We can't fail in that. And we can't close our doors and change our policies. And we should be, you know, the, the nation that the Jewish people looks to, the nation state of the Jewish people, as well as the democratic state of Israel. I fear we will be alienating much of the diaspora if many of these policies take shape. And then finally, on Israel, right? If it is to be a country where democracy is shaken and worse, if it's to be a country where the ultra-Orthodox community does not share the burden and is not required to share the burden and is, by the way, subsidized, how are Israelis going to feel? It seems to many Israelis that, that greater conflict is looming because of policies. The disunity, and by extension, the weakening of resilience, is something that concerns me and I think concerns many others as well. So yeah, relations with the international community are key allies, relations with diaspora Jews and internal Israeli unity and resilience. You know, I sound so bleak and I've never actually spoken as bleakly as I have in the last few minutes. And please God, let me be wrong. Let me be, let me be proven mistaken as Netanyahu assures us that the doomsayers will be. I, too, am more concerned about the Israel-Diaspora relationship than ever before in, in the past uh, three decades. Uh, and even at this preliminary stage, in truth, it's hard for me to get my hands around what are the messages that we should be conveying to American Jews? What do you think people like me should be conveying to non-Orthodox Jews, the vast majority of American Jewry, the vast majority of which are still either Zionist or pro-Israel, but are very concerned. Yeah, it, look, it's, it's very hard. First of all, 
these were democratic elections and, and Israelis made choices. The pure vote was somewhere around the 50-50. It doesn't matter. Within the rules of our democratic game, the victory was definitive and Netanyahu gets to choose the coalition that he can put together and follow the policies within democratic limits that they want to follow. In terms of diaspora jury, there are limits in what I consider to be the degree to which diaspora jury can seek to be prescriptive and seek to impose in areas that relate to our security, most especially, right? We live here, we make our political choices, we elect our representatives, we pay the direct consequences or gain the direct benefits. There has to be sensitivity in Israel, and therefore there needs to be an awareness of diaspora interests, and there should be good communication. And I think different people in different positions in the diaspora should follow the channels that are most effective in conveying concerns where they have profound and serious concerns. In other words, you don't get to tell Israel what to do. You do get to tell Israel you're really worried and you're worried about the consequences. And by the way, you worry about the consequences for Israel, but most especially for the people that you represent or for you yourself. You know, I, I think that's legitimate. On the other hand, I don't think you, you should be complacent, right? So I think it's foolish to say, well, you know, it hasn't happened yet. We don't need to talk about it. No, I think one needs to talk about it and one needs to watch carefully. And by the way, listen to people other than me. And I would say, which is probably a blasphemous thing to say, you know, read websites even other than the Times of Israel, right? I would also add, of course, you know, pendulum swing. Everyone knows what's going to happen in an American election, except it turns out that they don't. And people get elected as president unexpectedly and midterm elections play out better for the next president than anyone thought, etc. You know, pendulum swing in Israeli politics too. You know, things are not set in stone. Policies are not set in stone. If we all care for an Israel that we want to be proud of, and even though we have very different visions for it, as ever, you know, you try to do what you can to help ensure that we have an Israel that we can be proud of. There's no single recipe for doing that, and there's no single agreed goal on what it should be. But I think that formula is, is valid. Amen to that, and that's a good place to end our conversation. This has been a great privilege for us. So I want to thank you, David, for spending the time with us and for educating us and for doing all the terrific work that you're doing. Keep up that great work. Thank you, and I, uh, I hope I'll speak to you again, and we'll all sound a bit more optimistic. <laughs> David Horowitz is one of the most astute observers of Israeli politics in the media. He and his team at the Times of Israel are also experts in and acutely sensitive to the importance of Jewish communities outside of Israel, especially the American Jewish community, which is by far the largest and most important in the diaspora. I asked David what is his advice to American Jews who are as concerned as he is over the makeup of the soon-to-be-formed Israeli government and the increased influence of militant nationalists and radical religious parties, both of which represent worldviews substantially outside the mainstream of the world's Jews. This has always been a difficult subject for me. I struggle with it on a daily basis. I am a Zionist. I love Israel. Israel is the Jewish people's supreme creation in our age. Her very existence is a miracle, and that Israel has managed to maintain its democratic, pluralistic, tolerant, and liberal character through all of the wars and existential threats she deals with daily is astonishing, especially when we consider that most Israelis came from non-democratic cultures. And from a religious perspective, I believe that Jews are in covenant one with the other. We are responsible for each other. Given the nature of 21st century Jewish life, I believe that the American Jewish community needs Israel. 
Already now, Israel is home to more Jews than North America. And by Israel's centennial in 25 years, it is projected that perhaps up to two-thirds of the world's Jews will be living in Israel. No future Jewish community can thrive disconnected from the Jewish state. So how do we express disagreement? Constructive criticism in the context of a world that so often harbors deep animosities towards Jews and the Jewish state. This question always makes me squirm. I want to defend Israel in every form. As it is, American Jews are distancing from Israel, especially younger Jews. Most of what they hear about Israel and most of the news they receive from Israel are from sources that are not pro-Israel. So I have always felt that I need to try to balance this coldness towards Israel with down-to-earth Jewish warmth from a trusted, liberal, rabbinic source. Our community is in a real dilemma now. Since the Israeli elections, I have spoken with a stream of leading rabbis, including Orthodox colleagues, heads of major American Jewish organizations, and key volunteers and lay supporters. Everyone, literally everyone, is deeply concerned. And we are all struggling with the basic question of how to convey these concerns to Benjamin Netanyahu and through him to Israeli policymakers and Israeli society. American Jews are not Israelis. We do not get to decide who leads Israel. But does that mean that we should simply accept the most radical and unrepresentative forces of Jewish life? Or that we should overlook their vehement opposition to secular and liberal ideas, their intolerance of others, their hatred of the LGBT community and non-Orthodox Jews, 90% of the American Jewish community? Personally, I cannot do it. First, because I am not a politician or a diplomat. I am a religious and moral leader. I cannot condemn intolerance of minorities in America and not do the same in Israel. My role is to articulate the central moral principles that have guided our people for 3,000 years and to try my best to apply these values to contemporary circumstances, mindful that it is much easier to identify broad principles than to apply them to the complicated details of our lives. This kind of militant intolerance, the extreme religious fundamentalism, the rhetoric of hatred and arrogance, these are not Jewish values. Talmudic sages taught, what is said of someone who studies Torah but does not deal honorably and does not speak pleasantly with people? Woe to that person who studied Torah. Woe to his father who taught him Torah. Woe to his teacher who taught him Torah. From the beginning, Jewish tradition emphasized Torah's ways are ways of pleasantness and all its paths are peace. Second, I support Israel unconditionally, but not uncritically. It is because I love Israel unconditionally that I need to find ways to express my deepest concerns, to warn about the damage that may transpire if these extreme forces are not restrained. Real relationships demand accountability. Love means sharing that which gives us pain. Unity does not mean or require uniformity. In that context, I hope that Israeli policymakers consider what those of us in the leadership of the American Jewish community warn may transpire if the policies promised by the ultra-nationalist and ultra-Orthodox parties are, in fact, implemented. These warnings come from a place of love, not enmity. My message to American Jews who are conflicted now is do not abandon Israel. She is a miracle of biblical proportion. The country is filled with good, decent people on both sides of the political and religious spectrum. We need to make common cause with them. We need to strengthen them, fortify them, encourage them. We can no more forsake Israel than we can forsake our own limbs. Israel is flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone. 
Continue to do your part to invest in those who reflect the best of Jewish values. The majority of Israelis are tolerant, moderate, pursuers of peace, lovers of fellow Jews, and lovers of all mankind. Until next time, this is In These Times. <laughs>